Good morning, Bethel Church. He is risen. And it is a very good thing. Before I get into my message this morning, uh, I have some thank yous to offer. And I'm going to miss names, but I'm going to dive into it anyways. First of all, I want to thank Kara Beck and uh, the children's ministry team for bringing all the supplies over and, and setting up and taking good care of your kids. So give her a hand. She won't hear it, but do it anyways. Sue Nugent is, is overseeing the nursery at this time. Sharina and Amanda have overseen bringing over lots of resources and putting a bulletin in your hands so you can follow along this morning. The fellowship team has brought over tons of food, which is waiting for you outside, but you've got to get through me first, just so you know. And Randy Bezdek has brought his cookies as usual, and I know that's why half of you are here, and that's okay. The worship team has put lots of hours uh, in rehearsing, not so that they could put on a show, but so that they could proclaim the glory of our risen Savior with excellence with you and for you. And Andrew Chapman, as always, uh, we're so glad he's on our team. Uh, if he were not, it would be a dangerous thing for the world in general. But uh, Andrew has set up our sound and got all of the technical aspects together. Would you please give all of these people a hand for just preparing? Well, that's the good news, and now I'm going to challenge you with something that might be a little bit unsettling for some of you, and there's a conclusion that I've come to here recently, and that is after 13 years of pastoral ministry here at Bethel Church and serving as one of your pastors, I've come to the conclusion that you guys are killing me. I know, happy Easter, right? <laughs> Let me explain my complaint just a little bit. A couple of months ago, uh, we had the college group meeting at our house on Sunday evening as, as they do regularly uh, on a weekly basis. And for whatever reason, I really can't remember why this was the case, but uh, some of our old pictures came out, which is a dangerous thing to do. And they began to be circulated around and people were looking at them and commenting on them. And one of them was from about 16 years ago. In fact, it was our engagement picture. And here it is. I was expecting more like, you know, cat calls and whistles and hoots and hollers and all that. There we go. Thank you. I got one. The problem with this was that when this picture began to be passed around, one of the college students said, loud enough for me to hear, is that them? Is that them? And I was thinking, what, am I so much more handsome now that they don't recognize me? Is my stature so muscular and robust now that they don't recognize my old youthful figure? Is that the issue here? Is that them? What kind of grades are you getting in college? Are you passing like any of your classes? That's what I, that's what I wanted to ask. That's what I should have asked. And as alarming as this little encounter was, uh, things have actually gotten worse for me recently. Uh, I was just on a trip to Boston, actually Southboro, Boston, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was there for about a week and a half. I stayed at a Christian fellowship called Labrie, kind of a study center. And, and I was there for about a week and a half. A week and, a half and after being there for just uh, about a day or so, three different people came up to me unsolicited and within a couple of hours, they each told me that I looked exactly, I looked to them exactly like the comedian 
Louis C.K. Now, I didn't know who that was, but when three people tell you you look like somebody, you Google it, right? And so I did, and this is what I found. Some of you are far away, you can't see the discouragement on my face, but it's here. This is one of his better pictures. Maybe it's the coffee cup in his hand that, you know, looks like me. I, I don't know. But, but I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, no. I don't know if the long plane flight from Fairbanks to Boston has got me looking so bedraggled. Or if New Englanders are just delirious from their Super Bowl celebration that they can't see straight. I don't know. So here's the problem. In my mind, I, I look like this. But what people are telling me is I look like this. So naturally, I feel like this. Can I get an amen? Right? Anybody? There it is. And I'm recognizing some things now. I'm recognizing that actually my best physical years are actually behind me. This is a little startling. And, And I'm realizing that somewhere along the way, I have crossed over some kind of threshold. Young people are no longer claiming me as their own. And I don't remember crossing this threshold. And this kind of all sounds a little bit like a prelude to a midlife crisis, doesn't it? So I come back to my original complaint. I blame all of you. I think it's your fault. When we moved to Fairbanks 13 years ago, I was young and spry and I had a full head of hair. And so the conclusion that I come to is that you guys are killing me one follicle at a time. That's the conclusion that I come to. Why do I bring this up? Although it's a little bit of a comedic sketch of sort of my recent life, it does underscore a reality that we are all faced with, that we are all confronted with, and that is this, that we are mortal. The days of life that are granted to us are numbered, and that number is not infinite. Life is short, and it is, in fact, too short. How can I be halfway through my own life? We will not live forever. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Each one of us is getting older as every minute passes. So whether it's the face in the mirror that's laughing back at you, or it's some young punk kids telling you, we are mortal, and our time is limited. But the good news of the scriptures is this, that we can be born again. And not just to another mortal waning life, not just to recycle here on earth. Rather, we can have a new life and a living hope based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to ask you to open to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. The context here is that the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians throughout Asia Minor. And they have been scattered all around due to persecution that has broken out in, uh, in the cities, especially in Jerusalem. And amazingly, this, this same book could be written to Christians today. Christians in Iraq or Tunisia or Kenya. You see, the Bible is not so far off and far removed from our own cultural problems today. But Peter's pastoral task here is to try to comfort 
and encourage these suffering Christians in the midst of their struggle and in the midst of persecution. Think about that challenge. What word of encouragement would you bring? What counsel? What hope? What comfort? How do you encourage someone whose life is in danger because of their faith? Someone who's been run out of their home, separated from their friends and from their family, had their business taken or their crops destroyed? What words of comfort would you offer them? Well, surprisingly, Peter, he, he uh, begins his encouragement with these words in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says this, To those who are struggling, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his point. So that's point one this morning. Praise God. Okay, sermon over. We can all go get some cookies now, right? How in the world can Peter say to Christians who are fighting for their lives, how can he say this to them? Praise God. Given their context, it seems like an incredibly glib and insensitive platitude to just throw out to people who are struggling. But thankfully, Peter goes on to tell us why we should praise God, or rather, on what basis we can praise God, even in the midst of tough times, even in the midst of persecution, even having been driven from their homes, even when you're fearing for your life. And he says this, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now understand this morning my primary goal is not to try to convince you of the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. There is ample evidence, more than ample evidence to convince any fair-minded inquirer that that is true. In fact, if that is something that you're wondering about, there is a free book out in the lobby uh, by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter, and it's yours for the taking. I would ask you and encourage you to take that. Nor is my goal this morning to try to teach through one of the resurrection narratives that we find in the Gospels. My sense is that for many of you who come to an Easter service regularly... Uh, you could probably tell me the Easter story just as well as I could tell you. So understand this. My goal this morning is not to prove to you that an event has happened, but rather to show because of an event, the resurrection, what has happened to those of us who believe. In other words, what I want to show you this morning is the glorious implication of the resurrection. Peter says that we ought to and we are able to praise God because he has given us new birth. Peter is reminding his audience here that they have embarked on an entirely new kind of life. Those who have become Christians, in other words, those who have repented of their sin, accepted Christ's substitutionary death on their behalf, are able to be reconciled to God and now followers of Jesus. They are no longer living with a fixation on this temporal world. They're no longer driven by money or crops or career or advancing their station in life. 
they have been given an entirely new orientation, a new perspective from which to live, like pushing the restart button in life. And this perspective on life is so dramatically different than before that it can only be likened to being born all over again. Born again. That's where the expression comes from. In fact, Jesus used it frequently to describe what it was like to come to him in faith and to become a follower of his. And I will tell you this, I will not sugarcoat it for you. The decision to follow Jesus, to trust in him, is nothing short than the most difficult and the seemingly most costly decision that you will ever make in your life. But paradoxically, it is absolutely the most rewarding. In John 16, excuse me, Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever's trying to save their life by straining and striving, trusting in themselves and their good works and their good behavior, what they can gather, what they can amass, what they can accrue, what they can try to put on display for others, trying to trick God, fool God, fool the world, that they have it all together, will absolutely come to the end of their life empty and with nothing. But those who renounce those things and who fall upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ who came for you and died for you will gain everything. They will gain this life and the life to come. That is the great paradox of the gospel. And so overall, Peter is able to encourage Christians who are being persecuted that they, even in the midst, right in the throes of their persecution, can praise God because their focus is not here on this earthly plane. But as born-again believers, they are looking forward. They are looking to their heavenly home. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. That's our next point this morning. This phrase, living hope, I've got to tell you, this has just been ringing in my mind for about the past month. In fact, it's the reason I chose this text for this morning's message. As I read over this, this phrase just popped out to me and I I just couldn't, couldn't move past it. Peter is using this word hope in a very different way than we hear it used commonly around us every day. Uh, You'll hear the word hope and people say, I hope to win the lottery, right? Men hope to harvest a Boone and Crockett ram up in the Brooks Range. People hope that a book that they've been working on not only gets published but becomes a bestseller. People hope, especially college students, that a rich uncle emerges from nowhere and pays all of their student loans, right? Most of the time when we use this word hope today, we are referring to something like a Cinderella hope, right? A dream is a wish your heart makes. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about. This wish in our heart that maybe it might possibly or unlikely come true. These hopes are really nothing more than just wishful thinking. They're thin. They're strained. They're far-fetched at best. There's almost no chance that these hopes will come to fruition. But the hope that Peter is speaking about is a confident hope. It is a hope that is secured by something. It is based upon something 
real and tangible. It is a substantial hope. Christians have, and I love this phrase, a living hope. The hope of a Christian has a pulse. The hope of Christians has, in fact, a beating heart. The hope of Christians has air in his lungs. The hope of Christians has a name, and his name is Jesus. The hope of a Christian is living because Christ himself is alive. Our living hope died for us that we might be forgiven. But our living hope raised for us that we too might be raised to everlasting life. Our living hope ascended to heaven to the Father's side where he advocates for us presently. Our living hope is preparing for us a place where we will be forever with the Lord. This is living hope. It is on this living hope that Peter can in good conscience say to suffering, persecuted Christians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection. I've been reading a book recently. The title of it is Being Human. What a great title. You'd think we'd all just be naturally good at that. Unfortunately, we're not. And it's a very interesting book. It's, the authors are Macaulay and Bars, and they have in this, in this book a, um, this statement about hope. We have a hope which is not just wishful thinking nor against the evidence, but which is based on something completely objective, the historical resurrection of Christ. Friends, the resurrection is absolutely the linchpin of the entire Christian claim. If Jesus raised from the dead as he predicted and as the scriptures prophesied, as they foretold, then he is to be worshiped as God and he is to be trusted as Savior. He can be trusted for our eternal salvation because he conquered sin and death. And in fact, his resurrection is the prelude to our own. I want to tell you something. If you're a visitor this morning and you have heard the gospel message and you have heard the invitation and you've been reluctant and you've been stiff-arming and you've been delaying and refusing to respond to it for a while, maybe you are not so sure about the church. And I'm right there with you. Churches are weird, man. Maybe you're not so sure about pastors. I'm still right there with you. Maybe you're not so sure about Christians. I'm sympathetic to your suspicions because we have not always been good examples. Frequently we have been poor ambassadors for Jesus. But you can be sure about Jesus. You can be absolutely sure about Jesus because he has risen from the dead. In other words, you can hide behind smoke screens all you want. You can delay your decision because of a mountain of objections But when you come face to face with the resurrection of a dead man to life, then all of your objections have to melt away like a Fairbanks winter. The author of the book of Hebrews encourages us to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. All of this faith, every belief that the Christian has, hinges upon the resurrection. If it is true, then it can be believed. 
If it is not true, then the Apostle Paul says we are to be pitied among all men. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So we have a hope in something. This inheritance that we're talking about here in, in the mind of the original audience would be a lot, a lot more different uh, than what you and I might think of when we think of an inheritance. When we think of an inheritance, we think of, what is it that Uncle Bob is going to leave me? Hopefully that hunting rifle and maybe the you know, full collection of field and stream that he's had all of these years. Maybe he'll leave me the old cabin or a fistful of cash or something like that. When we think of an inheritance, we kind of tend to think of a private, personal object of value that is left to us as an individual. But in the Jewish mind, their inheritance was much more than that. The inheritance that they would have been thinking of was specifically the land. The land that had been promised to Abraham, his inheritance, which all of Israel gained. They would have thought about this land that they had settled into and where they had built their temple and where they had worshipped for generations. They would not have thought about an individual inheritance, but collectively they would have thought about this sacred place which was rightfully theirs, which they had in fact just been pushed out of due to persecution. So you can see Peter's not just telling us that someday we'll get a whole bunch of trinkets in the sky. What he is saying to his audience here is that this inheritance is about a place. It's about a place of belonging, a place prepared for us, a place where we will be forever at home with the Lord. And he assures us that this place will never be spoiled by evil, such was the original audience's experience. It will never perish. It will be enduring. It will never fade It will always radiate the glory of Christ because he will be the central feature of the inheritance to come and their future home. I love the words of C.S. Lewis the past couple weeks. I've been reflecting on this where he says there are far, far better things ahead than any we could leave behind. The Apostle Peter goes on to tell us that this inheritance is kept for you. And this word kept is, ah, it's just a little too small in the English. I wish there was a little more grandeur uh, translated for us. The Greek word is tereo, and it means to be guarded, to be secured, to be protected. This, This inheritance is absolutely secure. It is kept safe for you. In other words, no one will push you out of this inheritance, and no one will take it away. There is finally this last piece here in this passage that we've been looking at that is absolutely critical. Where he talks about all of this is activated through faith. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time.
here's the reality that we're confronted with here. That it is possible, unfortunately, to know all of the right information, but to never activate it in your life. In other words, I can have a TV, I can have a 75-inch LED curved screen that projects a hologram. But if I never turn it on, I have not activated its usefulness in my life. I can have the fastest production sports car sitting out in my garage. But if I never put the key in the ignition and turn it on, it sits there wasting. I can have a bank account absolutely filled with cash, but never access the funds. What I've just shared with you, this hope that Peter is reminding Christians about, is not just a historical narrative that we can have passively in our minds. It has to be activated by faith. We are not saved through good works, through striving, through effort, through right behavior, through morality. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ who lived perfectly for us. Do you want to stand before the Father in heaven and say, upon my effort, I think I'm saved? Or do you want to stand before him and say, upon the perfect life of Jesus Christ, I have confidence in my salvation? Jesus is one who lived perfectly for us. He died sacrificially for our sins, and he rose victoriously over sin and death. And this is all activated through faith. And I want to close this by giving you an illustration here. Recently, while I was in Boston, I had a chance to go to a a museum called the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Uh, And you may have seen it in the news recently. Uh, Actually, about 25 years ago, there was a theft uh, in this particular museum. And 13 pieces of artwork were actually stolen, including a Vermeer and three Rembrandts. Or at least one of them was thought to be a Rembrandt at the time. Uh, actually, NPR recently did an article about it, so you might have seen it in the, in the newsreel recently. In fact, what they showed were empty frames on the wall in this museum, and I got a chance to see those. One of the Rembrandts that was stolen is actually known as uh, Christ on the Sea of Galilee, and it's, it's the only seascape that Rembrandt is known to have done. Uh, it's valued at $250 million, and most people think it's undervalued. But it wasn't actually the Rembrandt, or rather the missing Rembrandt, that grabbed my attention uh, while I was there. Because in the center of this estate, which used to be a home, now a museum, uh, is this garden. I want to show you a picture of it. There's this garden right in the middle, and then four stories above you, there is this amazing atrium that covers the whole thing. Uh, There it is. And then outside of sort of this this courtyard on the first floor, there are these side cloisters which contain various sculptures and and different things. And one in particular caught my eye, and this is it. It was the most beautiful thing I saw while I was there. Um, This is what's known as a re-table. And uh, it's the first one that I've seen that I know of. This one's actually from the 15th century. Uh, and essentially, a retable is a backdrop to an altarpiece in a church, especially a Catholic church. And this one beautifully depicts nine scenes of the life of Christ. And I, some of you are squinting at it, I can see that. Uh, going from left to right, what we find, first of all, uh, is the baptism of Jesus. 
And then we see the kiss of Judas betraying Jesus to the Roman soldiers. And next we see the scourging of Christ. The center of this is obviously and appropriately dominated by the crucifixion. The next scene is Christ being lowered from the cross with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus there. Second to the last scene is the three Marys at the empty tomb. And the last scene is actually a scene with, uh, of St. Catherine, which, to be honest with you, I found a little bit out of place. But nevertheless, that's what it was. What was fascinating to me about this beautiful piece is as I was looking at it, actually there was a mom and her kids that were there and she was trying to explain what each of these scenes were. And it was fun because I got to, as a pastor in disguise, sort of sneak up behind them and say, well, actually that's what this is and that's this. That was really fun for me. I hope probably annoying to them. (laughs) I got to talk through this, this scene with them. But what was fascinating to me was that throughout this this sculpture, there was a recurring figure that I couldn't place. I didn't know who it was, uh, but it was the same figure. And so I did a little bit of research, and I discovered that uh, actually it was the donor who had commissioned this sculpture to be done, had asked that a likeness of them would be carved right into the scene. And at first, when I, I realized that, I thought, how cheeky is that, you know? That they would, they would have a likeness of themselves just inserted right into this amazing scene. And then it hit me that this was absolutely fitting and appropriate. The reality is each one of us needs to see ourselves in that scene. In the sacrificial death of Christ. Each one of us needs to recognize that Christ died for me. In other words, this isn't just an historical event. This isn't just a narrative story. It's not just a fiction. It needs to be recognized as a deeply personal event. And unfortunately, as I've said, it is possible to comprehend the gospel story, but not to appropriate it for yourself. The Bible tells us that it is simply not enough to know the gospel story. We need to activate it and appropriate it for our benefit through personal faith. Do you know that even the demons believe that there is a God? The book of James tells us this, and I would submit to you that the demons have a stronger theology than you do. They have a greater assurance of his existence. And I would say they know more about who he is than we're able to state this morning. And yet they are not saved because they have not appropriated it through personal faith. We need to activate and appropriate the death and the resurrection of Christ through saving faith, through personal trust. Each of us needs to see Christ's death as for me. We need to see ourselves at this scene, personally receiving it so that we too can have a living hope. Friends, I don't know how to say it any simpler than this. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. This isn't just a fictional story. It was the heartbeat of his life to come and to die for you. That your sins would be punished in him. That he would raise from the dead, conquering sin and death, giving you a living hope for the future. Christ died for you so that you could have new life in him and possess a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That inheritance is kept in heaven. It is guarded for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These are the beautiful and glorious implications of the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? And they are available for you if you would receive them. I'm going to close our time here with a prayer. And some of you are here this morning, maybe you've heard this story a million times, but maybe this morning you've realized, I have not seen myself in this scene. I have not appropriated what Christ has done for me. And I would challenge you, I would beg of you to make that most important decision today. That you would personally profess faith in Christ and activate all that benefit for yourself. I'm going to lead you through a prayer where I'm going to ask you to do three things. First of all is to acknowledge. Acknowledge your sin. This is, this is sort of an easy acronym for you, ABC. Easy as ABC. That you would acknowledge your sin. We call that repentance. That you would believe his death and resurrection is for you and can save you from your sin. And see that you would confess that he is Lord of your life by patterning your life after Jesus, learning to follow him. Acknowledge, believe, confess the ABCs. I'm going to lead you in that prayer now. If this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, then where you are quietly, I would ask that you would pray this back to the Lord. God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I'm in need of a Savior. I acknowledge that I have lived in rebellion against you, that I, my life is tainted from sin. I recognize you as a holy God, and I acknowledge that I need to confess my sin openly to you. Lord, I also believe, I believe that Christ died for me. More than that, I believe that he raised from the dead Evidence that sin and death were conquered and securing for me an eternal inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. So I acknowledge my sin. I believe in his death and his resurrection on my behalf. And finally, Lord, I confess. I confess with my mouth and with my life that I want to pattern my life after Jesus, my Savior. I want to be born again. I don't want to live with a focus on this temporal world and this earthly plane. But I want to live a life that honors Christ and looks forward to my heavenly home. Father, for those that have prayed this prayer now, I ask, Lord, that you would encourage this seed of faith that has been planted. God, I ask that they would have the courage to let us know in the the zip strips that they have in front of them here that they have made this commitment so we can follow up with them and show them about the glorious life that we can have in Christ and the living hope that we have. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you that you did not give up on us who are rebels, but you gave a costly gift, your son Jesus. We're thankful for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we can't wait to your glorious reappearing where we will be with you and like you forever and ever. Amen.